Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome to another groundbreaking episode of Superhumanize, where we sit down with the legendary Dr. Joshua Levitt. Imagine this, a doctor who doesn't just prescribe pills, but delves deep into the roots of your pain, combining the art of ancient healing with the precision of modern science. Dr. Levitt isn't your typical naturopathic physician. He's a trailblazer in the realm of natural medicine, a visionary who sees beyond the constraints of conventional healthcare. Think about the last time you felt truly listened to by a doctor. That's Dr. Levitt's realm. He's not just a healer, he's a listener, an innovator and a real-life health wizard. With a degree in physiology from UCLA and a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, he's got the credentials. But it's his over two decades of clinical experience, his role in shaping future doctors at Yale, and his pioneering work at Up Wellness that set him apart. He has helped thousands of patients with natural solutions to common, chronic, and complex medical problems. His primary focus is on painful orthopedic and musculoskeletal conditions and helping people understand and treat their pain at the source. This episode isn't just a chat. It's a journey through the uncharted territories of health and wellness. We'll dive into the mysteries of joint pain, explore the potent power of herbs and nutrition against inflammation, and uncover the secrets of adaptogenic herbs like medicinal mushrooms. Dr. Levitt is here to challenge what you thought you knew about pain management, gut health, and the delicate balance between our mind and body. Gear up for a conversation where conventional medicine meets its natural counterpart, and that has the power to transform your understanding of health. Get ready to be inspired, to question, and to discover a new horizon of health possibilities. Get ready to superhumanize. I'm Ariana Summer, and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically, and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Josh, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I'm really glad we get the opportunity to connect today. I am too. This is a real treat for me as well. And I hope that I can, I know you have a lot of listeners out there and I hope that I can help to educate and inspire them a bit today. I know you will. And the areas that you have expertise in, what your mission is in life is actually, these are actually areas that quite a few in our audience have questions about. I often get questions via social media. And I think some of them I can direct at you personally. You are a naturopathic physician and you specialize in what's called alternative medicine. Can you provide an overview for those in our audience who may not be that familiar yet with what alternative medicine entails and also how it uh, can complement or even replace conventional medicine? 
Yeah. And that is a big story indeed. You're right. I am a naturopathic physician, a naturopathic doctor. The degrees after my name, the letters after my name are ND, naturopathic doctor. I went to UCLA as an undergraduate and studied neurophysiology there. And then from there, I took a year off to explore, as we sometimes do in our early 20s, and learned about this field of naturopathic medicine, something that was totally unfamiliar to me as a young pre-medical student in Southern California, where I grew up. And it lit a spark that is still burning really hot today, this passion that I have for what you called alternative medicine. It's gone by many different names over the course of my career. Alternative was probably one of the first ones, natural medicine, complementary medicine, um, integrative medicine is now a common <laughs> term, and also functional medicine. And to me, th they are all very similar, that maybe there's some nuance there. But generally speaking, this is a field that prioritizes holistic care, that is the care of the whole person rather than any individual part of that person, or at least contextualizes disease in the context of a whole person, right? Like the way I like to just explain that is that I've never seen a knee or a heart or a liver or a lung come into my office. It's always so far been inside of a person and it is that person who gets the treatment. And so that's part of it is the holistic application of healthcare. And then the other part of it is the use of tools that facilitate that. And those are tools from the natural medicine universe, nutrition, diet, lifestyle, herbal medicine, dietary supplementation, that sort of thing. So hopefully that gives people a, a sense of the work that I do. Thank you. That's really a great overview. And I'm this, the type of work that you do, I'm so grateful for. This is what has resonated with myself also for so many years to look at oneself and also as others as a whole. <laughs> I like that analogy. You've never seen a heart walk into your practice. Sure. Um, and, and if you look at the so-called conventional medicine, it, often it is people are, especially with complex medical uh, symptoms, are referred from one specialist to the other, and they all just look at the parts like you're some kind of a car that has certain parts breaking down. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking at, okay, here's this whole person and to actually look at the root cause. When we're talking about integrative medicine, especially, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the aim is to combine the best of both the conventional and natural approaches. Now, how can somebody who is new to this and who may have been caught up in the, the conventional medical care system how can someone like that start to navigate the integration of these two paradigms effectively? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I, and I want to be clear here because we talked about conventional or mainstream medicine. And you, you, you said that very eloquently. The, and I, I just want to make clear that the idea of integration is that, yes, yeah, specialists in conventional healthcare, they can be brilliant. So there, there, there was a time, actually, I'll just give you a quick story. I had a patient who had a problem a very serious problem with his thumb. And around here, we have a lot of conventional medical specialists and subspecialists, super specialization. And um, specialization is just the narrowing and narrowing down on a, on a particular area. And there used to be upper extremity specialists, then hand specialists. And now there are indeed specialists who really only deal with complex problems of the thumb. And when you have a complex problem of your thumb, that's a great person to go and see, right? I don't want to minimize the power of specialization. I think that it is a form of healthcare. It is the dominant form of healthcare in this country, that's for sure. But holistic or naturopathic, the way I see it, 
really ought to be part of a person's healthcare team. And so to your question, how can somebody start to think about this? They've already gotten deeply down that road of conventional or high specialty care. And the simple answer that I would give, probably no surprise, is that they should get a naturopathic doctor on their team, especially for a person who has complex health problems, having someone on their team who brings to the table that holistic view and has a whole bunch of tools that are inaccessible, really unknown to their conventional team is very useful many times. Mm, I could not agree more. And I think if there is a a harmonious um, combining of both of the approaches that can generate the best outcome versus just prescribing drugs or treatments that take care of symptoms, but not the root cause. I remember especially a conversation I had with a dear friend who's also the chief medical officer of uh, one of our companies, Gateway Sciences. Her name is Dr. Beth Dupree. She's a world-renowned breast cancer surgeon, 35-plus year career. And she, at one point in her life, she just was not, she couldn't deal with that, what she was doing. Yes, she was taking care of cancer. She was basically cutting them out, removing them from her patients' bodies. But there was no she was not treating the root cause. And to herself, she said, this cannot have been it. So she actually chose to also educate herself in the holistic medicine path. And I think there's also a quite an awakening happening within the medical community. And again, so grateful that we have this medicine at our disposal, the so-called conventional Western medicine. How is it from your perspective? Are you seeing a lot of individuals, colleagues who are more conventional doctors, is there a seeking for more knowledge, seeking for expansion and seeking of more tools? I think there's no question about it that the field is gaining ground. If you want to put it that way, um, the way I like to think about it, at least the nature of my career is that there's this gap and it was a very wide gap between the world of natural or alternative medicine and the world of conventional medicine. And when I uh, entered the field more than 25 years ago, that gap was very wide and I felt like I was straddling it, right? And the goal was always to build a bridge or to bring those two worlds closer together. So to answer your question, I think absolutely they are definitely closer together than they were 25 years ago. Uh, Beth's story is is an example of that. I know many of my conventional medicine trained colleagues who have also opened up their minds, often as a result of exposure to patients who've done well. And interestingly, in the clinical setting, I see this playing out two different ways. I've been doing this for a while, and I have a lot of really good stories underneath my belt of patients who have been well-served, and I've had had good results using naturopathic approaches to healthcare. And very often, those people go back to their doctors and tell them that they had a good experience, that their problem is resolved, or that they're feeling so much better, whatever the case may be. And those doctors will respond in in one of two pretty characteristic ways. One is with some interest. Wow, you got better. I wasn't able to get you better, but he did, or a naturopathic doctor did. That's interesting to me. I'd like to learn more about that. And your friend and colleague Beth there is an example of that type of answer. The other type of answer is basically just dismissal, right? Like I'm not interested in that. That's not my field. It was probably just a placebo effect anyway. Um, Disinterest. And, And those people, maybe one day they'll come around Quite frankly, I'm not terribly interested in trying to convince them. You can lead a horse to water. Yes, that saying applies there. And you just mentioned that you have quite a few 
great stories under your belt of patients who had great outcomes working with you. Could you share one with us that has particularly stuck with you? Oh my gosh, putting me on the spot here. Yeah, there are so many. Let me pick one. And I'm, I'm, of, of course, I'm not at liberty to disclose personal or private health, and health information, but I'll give you an example. And this is, a, this is a, actually a rather common example. And this is a person who comes in with severe or advanced osteoarthritis of knee, right? The knee is hurting. The knee is not working properly. They are limited in their ability to do the things that they love to do. And so they go down the conventional route. That's the way most people do it. They get some x-rays, they get an MRI, maybe they take some anti-inflammatory drugs. They might get an injection of a corticosteroid. And then the ultimate, the highest rung of that ladder is that they've been told that they need to have their knee replaced. And this is very common, it happens hundreds of thousands of times a year in this country. So at that point, people get scared and they don't want to have their knee replaced. It sounds really scary and it is. And so they come to me and it's like, can you help? Right. And here we have a person who has evidence of advanced disease on imaging, MRI or x-ray. Maybe they have a meniscus tear and advanced arthritis, even bone on bone. And we put together a protocol that covers the whole spectrum of that holistic paradigm that we talked about. Improvements in their diet, improvements in their lifestyle, and then the judicious use or the specific use of nutritional and herbal supplementation to accomplish goals like reducing excessive inflammation or reducing muscle tension or dissolving fibrosis, scar tissue that might've accumulated around that joint. And then when in so doing, this person's knee starts to feel better. It starts to become more functional, still might look like crap on the x-ray or the MRI, but it feels good. And I have had many cases like this where people have decided to either postpone or even cancel a knee surgery as a result of that, or a hip or a shoulder, whatever the case may be. And that is a very common story that happens, not just in my office, but in naturopathic type of offices uh, all the time. Mm, that's wonderful. And these types of issues, this type of pain can be so debilitating and affect everything from the personal life, family life to the ability or to work or not be able to work. And pain management is such a significant concern for so many individuals and um, particularly like to get a little more granular on the example you just shared. I'd like to know can you share with us some of the, what's the prevalence of joint pain and arthritis? Like how big is this problem? When we look at the uh, population first, and then I'd like to, as I just mentioned, get more granular on specifics, knowing every body is different. However, what are some of the nutritional and herbal solutions that can effectively reduce inflammation in the body? Yeah, absolutely. Let, let, let's go there. So in terms of prevalence, especially as people move into the later years, let's call that 40 plus, uh, the prevalence of degeneration in joints is, I, I would say, bordering on ubiquitous, right? N nearly everybody, especially once you get above about 60 or so, will have some evidence of degenerative joint disease. And uh, we call that arthritis. And if we're talking about a, a spine, we're talking about bulging discs. It's actually interesting, statistically speaking, if we take the spine, Oh, or a knee for that matter. We could take both of those and look at the common problems that, are, that affect these areas in the spine, bulging discs. Uh, and in, in a knee, you'll see a, a meniscus tear, chronic degenerative meniscus tear. You take both of those two problems. In people, this is to your prevalence question, in people who have no pain, 
no pain. These are asymptomatic individuals by the generation. So people in their 40s who have no pain, we will see evidence that 40% of them will have a bulging disc and or a meniscus tear in their knee. In the 50s, it's 50%. In the 60s, it's 60% and so on. So by the time we get to 70 years old, there's a 70% chance that you will have a bulging disc and or a meniscus tear in your knee, even if you have no pain. And that's a really important point that I emphasize there because once we see the bulging disc or the meniscus tear in a person who does have pain, immediately we attribute the pain to the tear or to Hmm. the bulge, right? That's a very obvious thing. Oh, your back hurts. I did an MRI. I now see that you have a bulging disc. That must be what's causing your pain. And I am here to tell you and your listeners, it's not much of the time. It's not what's causing the pain. It's only maybe a contributor and maybe not a contributor. And there is an example of treating the wrong problem, right? You talked about treating the cause. The the bulging disc and the meniscus tear is often not the cause of the actual pain and disability. What is the cause of the pain? Wow, good question. Good question. So in a person who has pain and a bulging disc or a meniscus tear, as it were, what I've identified, having done this for a couple of decades now, is that there's three and even, and I'm going to add a fourth one on there, four underlying causes that need to be considered. And one of them, number one, is excessive inflammation, more inflammation than there should be given the trauma, given the stimulus. So excessive inflammation will be number one. Number two would be excessive muscular tension. So tension in the muscles in or around that area that are putting extra pressure on the area, compressing it even further. Um, restricting blood flow to the area, perhaps even impinging upon delicate nerves in the area as well. So excessive muscular tension or muscular strength and flexibility imbalances fit in there too. So muscular problems would be number two. Number three, I alluded to earlier, which is fibrosis. This is especially common in people who have previous injuries. Can you explain uh, what fibrosis is for those? Absolutely. Yeah. So fibrosis, I know it's a fancy medical word. Um, fibrosis is scar tissue. Fibrin is this protein that accumulates and replaces damaged tissue. So if most of us have scars somewhere on our body and we can look at that scar and see that it's not the same as the tissue that it replaced. It's close, but it's not as rubbery. It's not as elastic and it's not quite as supple. It's a little bit more fibrous. And so fibrosis accumulates at sites of chronic inflammation or previous injury. And that would be trigger or cause number three. And, and I promise you, if, I, I imagine the next question will be, what do you do about those things? And we can talk about those. Um, but before we get there, I want to allude to number four, because I think it's a really important one. And this one is not so physical or biological in the ways that the other three were. This is about the stories that people tell themselves about their pain. And when people have pain, it's, Oh, again, contextualized. It's inside of a person and that person has their own history. They have a job, they have a family, they have their own uh, past histories and their own family's past histories. They have stuff that they've seen and experienced. And sometimes when they have a knee pain or a back pain, it freaks them out and it triggers uh, a story about something that they've seen or something that they've experienced or a concern that they might have about their ability to work or make money or perform the job that they love or the sport that they love or whatever the case may be. And that psycho-emotional somatization type of problem, I would put, 
uh, as a strong number four uh, for underlying causes of pain and disability. Mm, thank you for highlighting that. That's really important, Josh. Yes. And number three? Yeah. So three was fibrosis. So I'll go through them again. It was like, it was excessive inflammation, number one, muscular tension, number two, fibrosis. That's the scar tissue accumulation, number three. And then number four is the stories that we tell ourselves about our own pain and disability. Excellent. And uh, I was not concise enough in my question just now. Uh, the follow-up to number three, uh, which you mentioned, uh, clearly saw coming the, what can we do about it? Yeah. So, right. And, and it, that's another big story and a big question. So if we break it down um, and start at the first one, which was excessive inflammation, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I know that you are well acquainted with this. Inflammation is necessary. It's a biological imperative. We, it's an immunological reaction to help us heal from trauma or injury, help us defend ourselves against infection. So we can't just suppress or eradicate inflammation. That's not really what we're after. What we're after is controlling it in the same way that we like to control fire, right? Fire controlled is great. Candlelit dinners, campfires, fireplace, but uncontrolled fire as in Southern California is, right. is devastating. And, and it's very much the same as inflammation. Inflammation needs to be controlled and contained appropriate for the situation because when it runs rampant, just like a fire, and by the way, inflammation is named after fire, inflammo, or to set a blaze. And so controlling and containing it, and that mostly happens with dietary modification, right? Eating less pro-inflammatory things, eating more anti-inflammatory things. And then there's a whole spectrum of things that we can do beyond just the diet, including herbal supplementation, things like curcumin, things like boswellia, quercetin, and other omega-3 fatty acids, and, and controlling the inflammatory cascade via what you eat and what you consume and what you don't eat and what you're exposed to. So that would be the foundation for an anti-inflammatory protocol. That would be step one. Yes. And I'd like to talk a little bit more in detail about some of this step one. For example, herbs. Herbs are my my personal candies, so to speak. That's what I much prefer to stuffing myself full of processed sugars. But talking about specifically about adaptive genic herbs, including medicinal mushrooms, they have gained huge popularity in the last years. There's been a lot of talk of, about them in social media, millions of views on social media platforms like yeah. talk. And so I would like to get your perspective on adaptogenic herbs and what the best way is to incorporate them into our um, well-being routine. Yeah, adaptogens are having their moment in the sun, right? And it's a great thing to see adaptogenic herbs, including this whole kingdom of fungi, right, of mushrooms, some of which can be very toxic, some of which can be very nutritious, and some of which are, are medicinal. They can have really impressive physiologic effects. Adaptogens are called adaptogens because they help us adapt to physiologic stress. And so when we are under stressful circumstances, that changes our physiology, things like cortisol go up and heart rate increases and all sorts of things like little biological or physiologic knobs get turned and dials get turned, switches get flipped and turn us into, you know, put us into fight or flight mode as it were. And adaptogens help to contain and control that reaction. And fascinatingly, and I think you'll appreciate this, many of the most famous and most useful adaptogenic herbs 
they grow in conditions that are harsh, that are environmentally harsh. They might grow at high altitudes like maca, for example, or they might grow in extreme cold like Siberian ginseng, Eleutherococcus, or rhodiola, the, the, the Arctic root uh, with delicate little yellow flower there. These plants grow in harsh or stressful environmental conditions. And the way that they are able to survive those conditions is by chemistry, right? They have chemicals in them that allow them to survive, right? Plants can't just go get a sweater if it's cold. They can't get a drink if it's dry like we can. So they have to evolve chemistry to allow them to handle the harshness or the stress of these conditions. And it turns out that modern phytochemistry, we can look at the compounds in rhodiola, for example, or in eleutherococcus, or in maca for that matter, and see that it's so fascinating that some of the very same chemicals that allow the plants to tolerate environmental stresses, when we consume those plants, they help us tolerate our environmental stresses, maybe altitude or cold temperatures, um, but also the kinds of stresses that are unique to humans, so the family, the money, the job, the stress, the work, this sort of thing. And so I think that's just such a cosmically cool way to think about adaptogenic herbs and the impact that they have on our systems. Yes, absolutely. And we are so fortunate. We live in times where we have knowledge at our fingertips. We can learn about these herbs. We can actually, we actually have access to them, which uh, 50 or 100 years ago was absolutely impossible because the knowledge was not there, the distribution was not there, or quite frankly, they were uh, only available to very wealthy individuals or, or royalty, uh, coming to think of traditional Chinese medicine and some of the formulas that a few hundred years ago, unless you were the emperor of China, you had no right to consume these beneficial herbs. It's a really great time to be alive when you are interested in doing something for your well-being. You absolutely can. You mentioned and also and the interesting thing, you're, you're so right about that. It is, it is a beautiful time and it's also precarious a little bit too, because we need to be considerate of the plants and the environmental sustainability of using them. Something that I think about a lot. And, and yeah, the, I think that adaptogenic herbs are having their moment, which is great. And I think that I hope that we and the industry behind that's doing the harvesting and the processing and the planting can do that in a sustainable way that allows the supply of these things to continue to nourish us and not do what humans are so keen on doing, which is just pillage of the land and just consider these things as the precious resources that they are. So yes, it's a beautiful time and also a little bit precarious. I, I totally agree. Thank you for bringing that up, Josh. That's actually really important to highlight. So what is your best advice for consumers who are interested in these amazing herbs and these amazing natural medicines? What do we have to make sure of before we actually buy a product? So not only to ensure the integrity of the product, but also that we are with our dollars or euros, whatever we, we're using as currency, that we are supporting a company that is ethical and has a focus on sustainability. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's another big one. Um, you're, you're keen on big questions today, which I love. So yeah, it, in Europe, it's a little bit different because there's a little bit more regulatory oversight um, over the herbal medicine industry than there's the United States. The FDA certainly looks at these things, but doesn't have a division directed or a regulatory establishment for, for the quality of herbal supplements. So it becomes a slippery slope and there's a lot of greed out there. It's a, and 
And I'll sound like a broken record here. What one thing that people can do, which I think is a great first step, is to have a naturopathic doctor on their team. Here I go again. The a, a board certified person who practices naturopathic medicine, who's graduated from an accredited university, we could talk about that, can be a really good guidepost for product selection because they have training in this, they have companies that they know and that they rely on and that do things in a good way. Um, as And I have no intention of being promotional here, but I'm also the founder and the medical director and the chief formulator of a company that I started called Up Wellness. And I get, it's really interesting. I get, even before our, our interview today, I, I was working on some customer service stuff and I had a, a question come in to my inbox from a person who was asking me for certificates of analysis of our products uh, for the regulatory, FDA regulatory um, information related to our manufacturing uh, centers and the uh, good manufacturing practice guidelines and these sorts of things. And so it was interesting because it's not too often that I see somebody who is as sophisticated as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are to actually reach out to the medical director of a company and say, hey, tell me about your quality assurance measures. How do I know that what I'm getting from you is what it says that it is? Can I see certificates of analysis? Is your product manufactured in a facility that, that practices good manufacturing practices and those sorts of things? And it's, these are very important questions because there's a lot of wiggle room for disreputable companies out there. Absolutely. And I, I think it's wonderful to when people take initiative and reach out like this one individual did. And if you don't mind, Josh, can you share some insights into with regards to up wellness, into the how you go about the development of your different products and what are some key things that you pay attention to when it's about how you source it? Maybe also some advice for other entrepreneurs who, or people who want to become entrepreneurs in that space and want to do it in an ethical way. Yeah, sure. So the, the, the way that up wellness really, for me, was an outgrowth of my clinical practice experience. So I, I have entrepreneurial inclinations myself. And so here I was seeing patients day in, day out, and I did that for many years. And I started to realize that as my waiting list was getting longer and longer, there was more people out there that needed the kind of information and advice that I was providing to my patient than I could ever possibly serve, really. And, and, and that was a great thing, right? This is a first world problem, to be sure, um, having a waiting list longer than I could possibly work through. Um, and so I started to switch my mindset a little bit and, and away from the idea that naturopathic medicine just meant practicing medicine one-on-one -on -one with one patient after another and started leaning into the idea of content creation, writing, video production, even podcasting, and then also product development. And so Up Wellness was an outgrowth of that effort to try to practice. I'm not exactly practicing medicine, but offer the kind of guidance and advice and products that I would offer my patients outside of the four walls of my clinic. And so, yeah, that started with basically taking the patterns that I had seen in, in, in the products or the combinations of products that had worked in my clinical practice for so many years and then putting my own spin on it. So I'll just give you one example of that. I had found that we, we talked earlier about musculoskeletal pain and inflammation, muscle tension, and fibrosis. And so I would use combinations of things to address those, right? I would use curcumin, uh, which is this extract from turmeric. I would use boswellia also as an anti-inflammatory agent. I would use magnesium, the, the 
mineral from the crust of the earth that so many people are deficient in that acts like a muscle relaxer. I would use bromelain, which is mm. a digestive enzyme found in pineapples, which is pro, it's proteolytic. It's meat tenderizer. It breaks up fibrosis, exactly what I was talking about before. And that combination, along with a couple of other ingredients as well, became the flagship product above wellness. This was directly related to the patterns that I had, had observed in my clinical practice. And, and, and to this day, it remains our, our best-selling product also, by the way. I love that combination yeah. of ingredients. And I'd like to get your take on curcumin, for example. How do you ensure the a high amount of bioavailability? That's something that I've read up on quite frequently also in studies that it appears to be quite hard for the body to assimilate it. Now you can add things like black pepper extract. Please correct me my the way I'm pronouncing it may be wrong, translating it from my mother tongue German to English, but piperin. You got it exactly right. <laughs> All right. Good, good to yeah. know. So, yeah, piperin is, yeah. So your question on curcumin is a good one. Um, curcumin is number one, the, 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 the so-called, and I say so-called because there are, of course, other active compounds, but it's the active, the most known, most well-studied compound that has anti-inflammatory potential inside of turmeric. So, and there's really only a very little bit of it in there. In whole root turmeric, there's only about 2% of its dry weight is curcumin. So there's your problem number one, the active ingredient is not very concentrated. And so the first step, if you want to use curcumin as uh, a medicine, so to speak, for the kinds of problems that we're talking about, you need to concentrate it. And so that way you can get more than that, that 2% per dry weight. And so what I use for that is a compound that's a proprietary extract. It's called BCM95 curcumin, which is concentrated curcumin to 95%. So much more potent curcumin than what you'll find in, in just raw turmeric extract, raw turmeric powder from the spice section. And BCM95 curcumin is also uh, processed with turmeric essential oils as well. So that adds some bioavailability there because the lipids, the fats in those oils help to improve absorption. And in this product that I mentioned before, I also did include a small amount of piperine because piperine, which is this black pepper extract, dramatically enhances the absorption of, of curcumin and other things too. It's not just, it's not just curcumin, but um, pepper has this um, remarkable effect of bringing flavors together in cooking. That's why it's one of the most widely used spices in the world, but it also has this, this very impressive effect of enhancing um, absorption. So yeah, so that's that's an example. And I, I'm a big fan of BCM95 curcumin for that reason. Mm, excellent. I will have to look that up. Also a personal question, what is your take on serapeptase? It's a good question. I get that one a lot. I think it's good. I think it's, it's, it's a digestive enzyme. I mentioned bromelain earlier as a proteolytic, proteo meaning protein, lytic meaning breaking, so proteolytic enzyme and serapeptase or serratiopeptidase is a proteolytic enzyme as well. And so, yeah, it is sometimes included in digestive health products and musculoskeletal health products. It's one of the key ingredients in a lot of the European digestive enzyme formulas that are used for musculoskeletal pain. So yeah, I think it can be useful, especially if there is a prominent or dominant fibrotic component to a person's musculoskeletal pain. I mentioned earlier, like some people have previous traumas and or historical surgeries 
and they have a lot of scar tissue accumulation in the area where they have pain, that's a case where more potent digestive enzymes might be useful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I personally have a very good experience with uh, serapeptase that uh, helped me years ago to dissolve a a cyst, which I was told I needed surgery for. Uh, Lo and behold, after four weeks of a therapeutic daily dose of serapeptase, that cyst had completely dissolved. And ever since I've been uh, trying to expand my knowledge base on this enzyme. And as it so often happens, there's, I think there's been quite a few studies done, for example, out of Japan on the uh, medicinal application of this enzyme. And we're lagging a little bit behind here uh, in the US and also in Germany. Um, we are, and we are because and it's, there's a couple of things that you, your story brings up for me. One is the idea that like you were told you needed surgery, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's interesting if I think about that. I think that the doctor, whoever it was that told you that, that was the tool that they had, right? Like they had your best interest in mind. They wanted you to get that cyst out, and rather than you need surgery, maybe the more appropriate thing is like the thing that I can offer you is surgery, right? Like that's what I would do to get mm-hmm. this thing out. They, they don't know whether or not there may be something else, like a like an enzyme that might help dissolve it, and 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 that's the unfortunate thing is that. Within the conventional or mainstream medicine model, you have a lot of, I, I, I just maybe would just call it hubris, right? Or ego that just suggests like, this is the dominant form. This is the dominant system here. So we use words like you need surgery when turns out you, you didn't need surgery. You were able to find another tool. And so this happens all the time. Surgery was an option and you were able to find a solution without it. So that's that's fascinating. And then the other part that you brought up is about this enzyme. It's a digestive enzyme. There's not a lot of money in digestive enzymes mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that there's money in patented pharmaceuticals. And so the development of big time research, large randomized placebo controlled trials is just not gonna happen with an enzyme like that. And so we're not gonna see this sort of research that we have in Japan where their regulatory and research infrastructure is very different than ours. That's where that's why these kinds of studies tend to come out of there. Yes, it's unfortunate, but it's also as long as we keep our eyes open for that, there's a lot out there talking about Japan or even talking about uh, Russia and certain scientific discoveries there. If you look at peptides, uh, it's always fascinating to learn outside of our own box. And what you just mentioned, of course, the, the vast majority of doctors has the best in mind for their patients. However, they work within the framework that they know that they've been taught. And uh, whether it's surgery, conventional medical treatments, or pharmaceuticals, it may just not be the best solution. Just yesterday evening, I had a conversation uh, with a lovely woman, and she was asking me for some advice to clear her skin. She's dealing with some acne, has been dealing it for as long as she can remember. And she said that she got off of something that a lot of her girlfriends are still on, also for skin concerns, acne, and that's called spironolactin, which I think is a medication that's used for something completely different. I think it's for heart conditions and is particularly prescribed to men, if I recall correctly. And so she told me about all of her girlfriends who are afraid of going off this medication because then the acne may pop up again. And of course, acne is can very well be a symptom of 
inflammation going on in your body, which you could take care of in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting story. And it's, it's, it's odd to hear that so many people are taking spironolactone for that. It is, a, the drug is a diuretic, um, just mm-hmm. to give you a little bit of background, helps, uh, it decreases blood volume by increasing urinary output, um, but it also has some hormonal effects and um, it's used fairly widely and regularly in women who have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, because not only is it a diuretic, but it also has some hormonal effects that are probably beyond the scope of this discussion now, or even beyond the depth of my expertise with it. But um, it does have some hormonal effects as well. So generally speaking, and, and and by the way, people with PCOS often have acne as one of the symptoms of that. So typically that story would be in a person who has PCOS and acne as one of the complications of it. So it's odd for me to hear that there's, <laughs> maybe there's a spironolactone happy doctor out there in LA somewhere, <laughs> all the women with acne spironolactone, even if they don't have PCOS, this happens. There's not common at all for doctors to get excited about something. And then it wouldn't surprise me a bit if there's a dermatologist out there somewhere who just loves spironolactone and gives it to all the, all the, all the women who come in complaining of acne. Absolutely. That is very well possible here in Los Angeles. And you have, it's a big part of your mission to also share guide people and to guide them away from thinking that pharmaceutical surgery or the conventional medical treatments are the only options. Unfortunately, these are the go-to options for many individuals. And can you just relate to us? Of course, you know this, I know this, many in the audience know this, but what are the potential downsides and limitations of relying solely on these approaches and not opening up to the so-called alternative Integrative. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. And I think it's crazy to me, actually, that this approach that I'm suggesting here or that I'll elaborate for you here now is considered alternative, right? <laughs> or Reed. some or, or sort of out there or woo-woo or something. Because here's how I think about that. I think about it this way, that when a person has a problem, and we're, we're mostly talking now about chronic types of problems. If you get hit by a truck uh, and you need to go to the emergency room. If you have a terrible infection and you need an antibiotic, that's a different story. We're talking about like longer term chronic problems here. But when a person has one of these kind of longer term smoldering health problems, the idea that I have is that we should think about our therapeutic options like a hierarchy. Let's call it a ladder. And that ladder has different rungs. And on those rungs, they get increasingly powerful uh, and dangerous as we go higher up. So the lowest rung would be things like changing your diet, right? Next up from that might be modifying your lifestyle, your sleep schedule, your stress management, your physical activity, the, these sorts of things. Up from there might be nutritional supplementation, maybe the use of vitamins, minerals, or amino acids, maybe in higher doses than you might be able to get from a diet. Then up from there, herbal medicines, uh, including just simple things like teas and maybe adding spices to your foods, and then maybe more fancy things the next rung. Things like uh, curcumin, more potent, almost drug-like doses of herbal medicine. And then up from there, over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, next rung, prescription pharmaceuticals, next rung, injections, next rung, surgery, right? And is that crazy? Am I crazy? Why is that alternative? I don't understand why that sounds like a crazy thing. To me, that just seems sensible. That just sounds like good medicine. 
Yes, I agree 100% with you, Josh. And thank you for also laying that out to us in this way. And I can visualize this as a ladder. And I think that really puts it into context for people. Another question I think quite a few in the audience will have who are not already working with a naturopathic physician. You mentioned it before, you want to look for someone who is board certified. What are some other things that we may want to pay attention to when it's about choosing the expert that we will entrust our health to? Yeah, that that is a great question. And it's it's a slippery slope. I, I'm a naturopathic doctor and I, I went to a school called Bastyr University, B-A-S-T-Y-R in Seattle, which also has a satellite campus in Southern California and San Diego. And graduates from Bastyr who come out with a naturopathic doctor's degree tend to tend to they'll take a board exam and then be certified via that 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 board. And then depending on the state that they're in will, and the rules and regulations around the practice of naturopathic medicine there may have a license that's issued by the Department of Health in that state and may even accept insurance like all of the doctors at my practice do here in Connecticut, and also may be a member of a national organization or a state organization. The National Organization of Certified Naturopathic Doctors is called the ANP, the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. And they have a website, of course, which is naturopathic.org. And that has a find a, a, a doctor search on it. And that's a good place to start, I would say. And the reason why I bring that up is because, and this is a tricky thing to talk about, but there are a lot of people, good-hearted, well-educated, meaning people who practice natural medicine in some sort, some way or another, right? And this is great. This is a great thing. We have health coaches, we have nutritionists, we have chiropractors who dip their feet into this pond. We have physical therapists, even medical doctors who do. And that's a great thing, but it, it it does become challenging for customers to patients, would be patients to find who's who. And right. so that's why I think an association like the American Association of Naturopathic Doctors is, okay, this is who we are, right? And the problem in my field that makes things even more complex is that depending on the regulatory situation in any given state, the word naturopath or naturopathic doctor may be uh, exclusive to doctors like me, like it is here in Connecticut, where there is a licensing law and a department of health that regulates our practice. And I have a license from the state, but in another state like New York, right next door to me, there is no regulatory oversight of naturopathic medicine, which means that anybody can call themselves a naturopath or a naturopathic doctor, because it doesn't mean anything to the state of New York. And so that that's not bad inherently. I'm not saying that anybody who does that is a bad person. It's just that they're different than me. They're differently trained, differently educated, and differently credentialed. And so that is that's a little rant for you on naturopathic the state of naturopathic medicine in the United States right now. Oh, not at all a rant. This is actually, in my humble opinion, really crucial information. And what you also just shared, if it is regulated by the state, I think that would also go hand in hand, such as is in your case, in the case of your colleagues in Connecticut, that it will be covered by insurance, right? Yeah. And that's a decision that's that. So yes, it's a requirement that the state recognizes the license before an insurance company is going to offer reimbursement for the services. That's a hundred percent. Yes. It also, just because the state recognizes the license doesn't mean an insurance company needs to reimburse for those services. That decision is made by the, by the CEOs and the executive boards at these insurance companies. But in the state of Connecticut, generally speaking, the insurers are, yeah, they pay and they reimburse for naturopathic medicine. We are considered specialists 
which is funny, right? We talked about the highly super subspecialist naturopathic doctors in this state, my state are considered specialists um, by most insurance companies. Mm. Yes. And I think this is also something that I regularly get uh, feedback on from my audience when they talk to me out of different states in the U.S. that they wish they could work with someone such as yourself, but wherever they live, it's not generally not covered by insurance and maybe not covered by their specific insurance either. And then when, of course, the what they pay out of their own wallet, the cost just becomes or they think it may become unmanageable. I know it's very, that's a sad, a rather tragic situation, right? That this, these low rung therapeutics that we were talking about, the diet, the lifestyle, the nutritional supplementation are not valued in the way that they ought to be by these insurance companies. And, and, and this is another huge problem. I remember talking years and years ago during my residency, 20 plus years ago, I was part of a panel that was talking about this with insurance companies in the state of Washington. And what I came to realize at that time was that insurance companies know that their customers, their clients will switch from one insurer to another every 18 months, two years, maybe depending on the choices of their employer, because we have an employee employer-based healthcare system here for the vast majority of people. That's the benefit that we have here in this country. And it's not really in the financial best interest of the insurance company to consider things like the long term, right? Like they know that their customer is going to just be with them for 18 months to two years before they switch to Cigna, before they switch to Aetna, before they switch to Blue Cross or whatever, right? And so there's not a lot of incentive on the insurance company side to maintain the health of a population over the long haul in the same way that there is with a system like Medicare, who's going to foot the bill from age 65 onward, right? And so I'm not making political statements here, but that is one of the things that needs to be considered when we're talking about universal healthcare, like you have in so many other places where the baby is born and the insurer knows they're going to be taking care of that baby and, and the cost of that baby's healthcare for its entire life. There's a lot more incentive to keep the baby healthy right through their whole life. And we don't have a system like that here. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we see what we see. Yes, absolutely, Josh. And it's a huge problem. And I hope that at some point, all the different insurance companies will see that if, if they all would change their tact, it would be for their own fiscal well-being as well. Because if you keep taking over people who are with a different insurance company, that insurance company operates exactly like you, not really caring about the individual in the long term, guess what? You're going to end up with a lot of very sick people at some point, and it's going to cost you more, even if you- Welcome to America. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's a crazy system. And, and it's sad for the people who know that they want this kind of healthcare and simply can't afford it. We, we also know, and I'm sure you would agree, there's no amount of money that's a substitute for your good health, right? So if it means shifting budgets to try to uh, compensate for the, 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 the bringing in of, of a natural health provider onto your team. It's very often, it pays dividends in the, in the, in the long run in, in, in the form of good health. And so it, it depends on the situation and the, on the individual, but it's often an investment worth making. Yes. And in the long run, saving a lot of money, saving a lot of pain and tears in many cases, and oftentimes also in the short term, it can be absolutely life-changing. Simply having some 
lifestyle changes such as guidance as far as your diet goes, um, as far as certain herbs and supplements go, I have seen huge changes in people who are not doing well at all just within a few weeks of, as you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, cutting out certain things and then adding certain other things. It can be, not in every case, of course, but it can be as simple as that. And that does not cost a lot of money. Absolutely. There's a lot of doctors that are out there that are charging gargantuan amounts of money for this often functional medicine. Doctors have these practices that, that cater to wealthy people. And you see these very high price tags for fancy laboratory tests and things like that. And very often those I think are higher rung therapeutics too. And there's a lot of healing that can happen on those low rungs that don't cost very much at all. And yeah, and you're absolutely right about that. Yes, Josh, we've covered quite a bit of ground from joint pain to pain to stress to adaptogens and the healthcare system. And there's so many other topics I'd love to get your take on. I know our time is limited, though. Something that I'd really like to hear from you, if you're willing to share, is if there's a certain practice that has really elevated your life. It could be something new that you've recently discovered or something that has been part of your life for a long time. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to share. And I appreciate the question. This might come as a bit of a surprise, but there was a paper that was published out of the University of California at Berkeley years ago. And what they looked at in this paper was the influence of emotions on inflammatory markers. And what we've known for a long time that negative emotions, things like anger and jealousy and those sort of negative emotions are bad for our health. And we've also known that positive emotions, things like joy and love and happiness, contentment are good for our health. But what we didn't know exactly the specifics, right? And so this team of researchers set out to find which of the positive emotions had the greatest influence on uh, interleukin-6 levels, which is a measure of in inflammatory activity in the body. And it turned out that the positive emotion that was most strongly associated with reduced inflammation levels was awe. So the idea, and to your question, what, have I, what do I do in my life that's a powerful practice? It's to find awe, to look for it, to have my radar up, my antenna up, looking for things that give me that sense of awe. These don't need to be profound things, but they can. A mountainscape, a powerful thunderstorm, a big wave in the ocean, um, but also small things like an anthill or the cross section of an orange that I just cut open or something. And looking for awe and documenting it in, my, in the files inside of my brain is, is a practice that I make use of every day. And I would strongly encourage everyone to do because it's a powerful tool and it quite literally impacts your inflammatory levels. So that's, that's my answer to your question. How beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Josh. That is, I love it. I absolutely. Pretty awesome, right? It's all, it's, 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 it's that awesome. awesome right there. <laughs> <laughs> Truly wonderful, Josh. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, yeah. wisdom, and uh, yeah, I really love picking your brain. For people who'd like to learn more about you or reach out, where can they do? Thank you for that. They can find me. I'm at Up, Up Wellness is the name of my company, Up Wellness, U-P-W-E-L-N-E-S-S. -S. And we have a website, upwellness.com. You can find me there and all these products that I formulate. I also, I never would have thought I was going to do this in, in medical school, but here I am on social media as well, on Instagram, 
And that's the little at symbol. And then Dr. Josh Levitt, Dr. Josh Levitt. That's my Instagram handle. That's also my TikTok handle. So I'm there as well. I think between those two, there's about a hundred thousand people out there that are following my work. And so that's a great place to stay in touch as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us today, Josh. It was really a joy. I learned a lot of new things and uh, yeah, gratitude to you. And I hope you have many continued awesome moments. I will try to seek all right now after we disconnect. That being said, thank you for connecting today. You're so very welcome. It was, a, it was a pleasure. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.